Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining us in these high-altitude conversations, where we have the chance to talk to the decision-makers, the people at the top, the chairs and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organisations and, indeed, often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something for you to reflect on and perhaps utilise or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers, and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. Our guest today is a very distinguished corporate director and accountant who made his way from chartered accounting office to industry, to retail and fast-moving consumer goods, working for major New Zealand corporates as a general manager and planning before taking the helm as chief executive of one of the country's two largest dairy concerns, and then seeing that organisation merge as a major component of the country's dominant dairy business and largest export earner, Fonterra. For the past 17 years, he's been an active corporate director and respected chair, filling senior governance roles in both private and state sectors. The latter has included roles such as chair of Kiwi Rail, the state national railway operation. He's been a forceful voice in his profession and held various roles in the Institute of Chartered Accountants, while also serving on a government task force for economic development. For his long and valuable service to business and the profession, he's been honoured by a tertiary institute, his fellow accountants and his country being recognised as a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2011. Perhaps his most demanding role, one that's exercised all his talent, both personal and technical, was his decision to assume the chair of one of the country's largest iwi groupings, Tainui, the first tribal settler with government under the Waitangi process. Tainui was in total disarray when he took the chair. A lack of real controls and processes that was publicly exposed had seen a large part of the financial settlement wealth eroded or squandered on poor investment decisions. He bravely took up a task that many thought impossible and set about managing and restoring the fortunes of the Waikato tribal iwi. On a more personal note, I well remember him chairing a meeting in our offices during the Christchurch earthquake. He was at the time chair of the National Rail Organisation. Part of that had been severely damaged and I had to bring him news of the earthquake into the boardroom. Within minutes, in a decisive and intelligent set of actions, he'd sorted out the processes and the people and got them focused and on the ground. John Spencer, a warm welcome to High Altitude and an equally warm thank you for generously taking the time to talk with us. John, for those of who are not familiar with the treaty settlement process, first of all, can, can you outline for us the background to the settlement, the nature of the actual assets that were delivered to Tainu on the day of settlement? Uh, I think it it was a landmark settlement in New Zealand, wasn't it, aimed to address historic land confiscation and similar? Yes, John, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the Tainui settlement, of course, was the very first settlement. It was occurred in 1995, so it certainly was setting a precedent. Right. The settlement consisted of $170 million in cash and property. And to put that into perspective, there were 455 property titles as part of that settlement. 450? 455. 455. A number of which were unproductive strips of land beside a road, for example. Two other, two other parts of the treaty that were important were the first right of refusal, in other words, for a period of time, 
any government or local body land that was for sale had to be offered to Tainui, and within the area, had to be offered to Tainui first. Right. Also, and very important, it was a thing called the Relativity Clause. And that was very well thought out by those that on the Tainui side that negotiated in the early stage, because what it meant was being the first cab off the rank, no one knew what was going to follow, except there'd be lots of, um, obviously lots of claims. Therefore, you'd look pretty silly agreeing to a number when those that came afterwards got a lot more. So both Tainui and Natahu have the relativity clause. In fact, there's just been a recent payout uh, in the last month or so, a lot, very large, I think it's the second or third large sum that's gone out, and there's more to come. So there's a formula. It's a very complex formula. Don't ask me to tell you what it is because I don't even understand it myself. Does um, it have a time limitation on it, John? I'm not sure. I think it's when the last settlement says, John. I think it goes right through to the last settlement. I'm not sure about that. Right. So they they were the uh, they were the key parts to it, and so the relativity clause. There's been large payments come in the last uh, two or three large payments, very large payments to both Tainui and Natahu, because they were the first two camps. Right. Well, I mean, in assessing the size of the settlement, did Tainui uh, have a particular argument or case or or piece they were putting forward about confiscation, or or what was it that was the main driver? I was I wasn't there in those days, John. So, but what I can, I've, I mean, what I've read, and what I, I can understand, uh, yes, there are lots of um, figures bandied about about how much it was really worth, what the land was worth, etc. And I, I'm not sure how the government finally agreed on the 170 million. Uh, but remember, we're talking about 1995, so we're talking over 20 years ago. So right. a lot of money in those. It still is, but. Um, Yes, I knew would have wanted a lot more, and this and this was a compromise. And this is why I think the relativity clause was so important. Right. Because obviously, as more settlements came on, uh, things got more sophisticated. There would have been far better ways of judging exactly what the settlement should have been. If if they settled in 1995, John, when did you actually assume the chair then? I didn't get there until 2003, eight years later. And January. January 2003. Right. And so who approached you and, uh, and and what was the background to that? Well, I was on a board, a small government board on literacy and numeracy uh, with Susan Hurrier. And Susan is a consultant for a number of uh, iwi uh, and working with Tainui at the time trying to sort out their issues. And over a cup of afternoon tea, she approached me and asked me, would I be please put my name forward to be the chair of Tainui Group Holdings? I asked her two things. A, what I'd done to offend her, <laughs> and two, what was what was second price. And the reason I made those comments was because remember I was living in Hamilton at the time, and there was nothing but negative publicity about Tainui, all the rorts that were going on. Uh, Jock Anderson, writing for the NBR, just done a very very well researched series of articles about the um, misdeeds and what it, and what had happened. So everything was very negative. She did talk me into meeting with Steve Murray, who was the chief executive, had just been appointed in August 2002. Um, at the time, I was leaving the dairy industry, so I was looking for a new challenge. And in Steve, I found someone who uh, had all the right motivations but needed uh, needed support. I mean, I, I mean, what he walked into was pretty unreal, so he needed support. So, um, And I was asked to set up a separate commercial company and run that and chair that. So, yep, that's what I did. Okay. So what had happened to the settlement assets in that eight years from the time of settlement to the time you got in the chair? 
Well, by the time I got in, the 170 million had become 140. Wow. So 30 million, 30 million had been lost. There was little or no cash left. Um, the Bank of New Zealand, I believe, had written off $10 million in loans. They did have some good investments, I mean, such as the Novotel Hotel in Hamilton, Huntington, the residential sections, but also a number of very, very poor investments in property deals. I mean, buying the Warriors was one uh, that's well known. The, um, I think the best example I can give of what was going on was they invested $6 million in a property in development in Geelong, in Victoria, Australia. Goodness. Uh, they went from a first mortgage to a second, to a third, to a fourth, with absolutely no consideration. Lost the lot. Good grief. However, the, there were three promoters, quote, of this development. Each got professional fees of $800,000. They were Australians. Gosh. So, so don't tell me someone didn't get their palm grease. Of course they did. Right. So, so it, was, it, it really had some issues to consider, didn't it? It certainly did. There are a number of contingency issues going back right back to 1997. Uh, as, as one example, there was a property sold then for $8.1 million. It was not settled due to the state of the building, but finally settled in, 19, in 2003 for $4.8 million. So a lot of legacy issues. So sitting in the f chair on that first day, John, just looking yep. at some of the problems that needed urgency, what was first on your list to tackle? Well, just, sorry, just finishing back on that one, the other thing too, that because the way it had been set up, remembering there hadn't been a separate commercial company, there'd been a number of subsidiary companies. There were in excess of 20 subsidiary companies with, uh, sorry, in excess of 20 directors and bank accounts. Gosh. And those directors were getting paid about five or $6,000 a year each. No, no, no one was having meetings. It was in name only. Um, so, yeah. Um, what was the first issues? That, what was the first issues? A number of them before. It was, actually, we weren't directors. Right. Was, we were what's called bear trustee. Right. A term I'd never ever heard. I've never come to. In, in essence, a bear trustee is, is meant we didn't really have the power to make decisions, i.e. our decision could have been overturned by the trustees. So you were strictly an advisory board in the real sense, weren't you? Yes. We, we were, in other words, the trustees above us, they had the ability to overturn any property deal we did or any other deal we did. So that was number one. Secondly, there was no proper list of assets and liabilities. Um, there was certainly no proper governance. Board papers, when I asked to look at the back board papers, they were just uh, um, a number of PowerPoint presentations. There were no proper resolutions. Um, so the first thing to do, again, was to get control of the checkbook. Right. Had to had to nail it down. We had to get the list of what the contingency liabilities were. Uh, there were a number of legal matters that were outstanding, um, and also the auditors had not signed off the accounts for the last two years. Goodness gracious me! So it was a bit of a disaster zone from a governance point of view. Yes, exactly. And remembering you had new management, so all the comments I'm making do not uh, no reflection at all on the management that I that uh, Steve and his team because they were new. And they just inherited a pretty messy situation. Uh, they're just a complete lack of control. So that's a pretty daunting task to face. So uh, if you look at it, and if you were thinking of other people coming into a similar thing, I mean, the sort of position, where do you start in well, a recovery? Uh, 
the first the first thing is to um, realise that coming in there from a, from a chair point of view, a board point of view, you've actually got to take control. Forget about division between board and management. This is a matter of you've, you've just got to take control. So the first thing to do was to get control of the checkbook, find out what was going on, um, establish proper governance, reporting. We had none. Set, a, set out a timetable for a recovery program. Um, talk to the auditors, find out what the issues were, which I did. Um, and just, just to make sure you know what the – make sure that everything that was on – that, that was no, that was an issue had to get on the table. Right. Um, we had to ensure we had the required expertise. That's both board, management, external advisors. Um, one of the issues – I think one of the big issues here is you've got to clear the alligators from the swamp. One of the things that is often said, you know, low-hanging fruit, it's easy. Trouble is, that's great as long as you can reach up and get the ones above as well. Right. Too, too many people put off facing the issues, and these had to be faced head on. I mean, it took Tainui Group Holdings, which is the commercial entity, 12 months to get a clean state, to get to a clean slate with all outstanding matters dealt with or in the process of being finalised. A oh. good 12 months. And you'd have found some interesting pitfalls in the middle of that swamp, I suspect, did you? Well, well, particularly there were certain issues with property where I was quite convinced from the paperwork we had that we were in the right. Went and saw I myself went and saw a couple of individuals to, to say what the heck's going on because they weren't the people I knew had good reputations, only to be produced and presented with a whole lot of other paperwork I'd never seen mm. that they had, undertakings, etc., that we had no record of. Yes. So talk, talk about being on the back foot, and you just end up in a situation where you've just got to try and negotiate your way out of these things. And w w how did you deal with the resources? I mean, apart from the auditors and people, there must have been resources you required to pull in. How did you do that? Yes. I, um, the first thing was that uh, we appointed – one of the things I said, I'd only take it on if I could appoint the directors. And the people I appointed were Cora Wettery, the Honourable Cora Wettery, Kingy Parama, who at that time was the uh, chair of the trustees, and very importantly, Rob McLeod. All people who understood, well, of course, obviously, Koro and Kingy understood the Tainui situation, but Rob very much understood the treaty process and married him. Well, um, he, he comes from Maridum, doesn't he? And is also a partner in one of the major accounting firms, if I recall correctly. Exactly. So Rob was absolutely, Rob was, and in fact, it was Rob that alerted us to the fact that we were bare trustees. Because right. Rob is both a, a lawyer and, and an accountant, qualified both. Uh, he was vital in the whole thing. Um, so the resources, I had to call in a few favours. No one wanted to deal with us. I was surprised at the anti-feeling out there. Right. Very, very anti. Um, in fact, even a number of people, when I was uh, approached to talk about being appointed, said to me, don't take, don't touch it. There was a real anti-feeling. The, the feeling was that um, the government had given this money away and um, because of what had been put in the press and what had well, a lot of it was very accurate, that there was just a lot of rorts going on. So who would want to get involved in it? Right. Um, but the point was that both Koru and Kingi, or Kingi and Koru, they were the key drivers of people, and the vast majority of people in Tainui that wanted the situation turned around. And it was they who were the key to getting a separate commercial board appointed Right. Um, you know, management, as I said before, management and board have to work together in these situations. You can't. There's no such thing as a division. Right. And what happened after 12 months? We then, after 12 months, we appointed two new directors. 
one with property and the other with banking experience. Initially, the CEO of uh, Steve Murray of TGH and the CEO of the trust were on the board, along with Karu Kingi, Rob and I. But so we replaced the CEOs, as I say, with expert in property and banking. So property remained a big, pretty strong feature of the assets. A huge feature, yes. And going forward, we'll talk about that later on, but it's, it's, it, was, it was one of the major blocks for um, restoration of their fortunes. Right. Now, obviously, when we talk about this, there's features that weren't present in a private or a public corporation. So, you know, if, if you're moving into the senior ranks in one of these cooperatives, what sort of things do you have to consider? Are there any guidelines to follow? Well, I guess in my own case, I was lucky because I'd come from the dairy industry, which, of course, is a co-op. Um, the, the key to remember is that when any organisation like a co-op, uh, Maradon, where the majority of people, uh, directors, etc., are voted in, you've got politics. Right. And you can't avoid it. So anyone that says it's not politics um, is dreaming. The key is to be aware of it and stay and stay out of it. Right. Let, let them sort it out. Um, the other thing, to, and particularly in the sense of Maradon and, and, and co-ops, is cultural values. You're dealing with a number of very, very important cultural values that you need to understand and respect. Also, um, Maradon is a family, and you're not a member of that family. So don't don't pretend you are. You um, At the end of the day, they look, they've got to sort their own affairs out, as all good families do. Right, and even I think attending an AGM for Tainui at some stage, I noticed that it had a distinctly Maori and unique atmosphere. Mm. It, it is, it's, it's a uh, it is a unique atmosphere, um, one that I think we could, a lot of us could learn from, actually. And if, when you were dealing with the lines of authority and setting up reporting and so on, were they confused, or did you have to define them? Um, I don't believe that that lines are confused. I think what's the, what is what was confusing was who was who was responsible for what. Right. So not so much the level of authority, but responsibility. If you look, go back to what I talked about, the bear trustee, that was uh, some lawyers and others working for the for the tribe saying that well, you can have a commercial entity, but but maybe, but you're still going to be in control. Right. So. Make them just be a trustee. So then they, you make all the decisions. So there's a complete lack of trust. And given what they experienced in the first eight years, I'm not surprised. Right. So what we had to so what we what I did, which is absolutely essential, was we had a formal shareholder charter, which set out, in only in eight pages, the rules of how or who had authority to do what and where the responsibility was. Okay. Right. Um, people will say, oh, it's in the Constitution or the rest of it. Well, the Constitution may be 50-odd pages, which um, is, great, is great from a legal point of view, but not from what things, things that things that we were dealing with, for example, was you know, how long would, it, would a director be appointed for? Who had responsibility for appointing a director? Who set the director's fees? Right? All, all the basics. What, what, hmm. what transactions had to go um, before the trustees in terms of um, percentage of dollar value? Versus could be determined by the board. Who appointed the auditors? Or as you say, all the basics. Who appointed the CEO? Who set the remuneration of the CEO? John, if if we were to come to the, the fact that there's still a number of these settlements yet to be determined, and we look at the 
the way in which this went through, there were obviously weaknesses from government's point of view as well in terms of setting up the, the uh, parameters, if you like. Have they changed that at all? Or are there better processes today for settlement? Not that I'm aware of. What I do think has happened, though, is that a number of the people that have settled since those days, a number of the tribes, have actually learned from the issues, the Tainui issue in particular. I mean, I chair Rakawa um, Commercial Entity, which is the South Waikato Iwi, and when they approached me, the first thing they said to me was, can you please come and help us? Tell us what you've learned from Tainui so we don't make those mistakes. Right. So so it was a, a first off the block, but a real learning experience for the for the literally the national iwis. For the ones that followed. Yes. Because if you look at the, there's a contrast, of course, as Natahu followed pretty quickly afterwards, and it never had these type of, some of the issues that, um, it's had political issues like all they all do, but it hasn't had the um, issues that Tainui had losing money, etc. In fact, Natahu's been very successful. Is that, is that left to the, the processes for control? Are they left to the iwi now? That's right. They just, but, yeah. They always, if it had been left unchecked, what do you think would have happened? Have you got a view? Um, I, if it had been left unchecked, I think there may have continued erosion of value. I think you'd have seen that you may have had a chance to see a bailout from government. Right. But what what was interesting, it would have certainly had an impact on future settlements. I, um, when I was uh, after I'd been approached about joining the Tahu about joining uh, Tainui, should I say, uh, I spoke to Edmund Ellison, who was heavily involved with Natahu, and he was extremely helpful to me, gave me a lot of lot of assistance and things I should look for, how I should go about it, etc. And I said to him, but, you know, I thought Tainui were the enemy. He said, you, what you've got to understand is that what's happened in Tainui and all the publicity it's getting, this was back in 2002-03, uh, is actually hurting all of Maradon. It's reflecting on all of Maradon. We're seen as being people who just take money off government and um, put it, use it in an incorrect manner, etc. He says that's really, so it's in our interest that Tainui gets sorted out, which I thought was a very, very uh, interesting statement. It was indeed. To, uh, in the broader, apart from the key players who obviously uh, had a drive to get this right, was there a receptive audience in the broader Tainui population? Absolutely. Absolutely. They were, um, they were uh, the vast majority were embarrassed by what had happened uh, and they wanted it sorted out. Um, and no, 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 no issue there at all. Right. And, and if we're looking at your experience, um, does Maori thinking and culture sit easily in a commercial framework and enterprise? Uh, I think so. I'm, I'm sure it does. So long as you understand a number of things. Firstly, they're obviously very sensitive to things like land holdings and water. Uh, they take a long-term outlook, which I think is very interesting. They build for the next generation, which I think is one of the, one of the, one of the real benefits of dealing with them. There are taboo investments, things like um, we, when I first in, inherited TGH, we had investment in the casino, right. which, is, which, is the, which was um, the wrong thing to be in, simply because of the number of Maori in the local area that were being affected by it. Um, and, of course, as I say, you've also got to understand the politics of Maradon, and they're pretty heavy. <laughs> uh, uh, you'd, have, uh, you'd have probably had a, a big single headache in that early stage, and it must have absorbed a lot of time. What was the big headache? Um, the, the biggest headache was actually establishing credibility and morale 
right. morale than staff, but credibility in the local area right, um, or all over the place. Um, it was very, very negative. Wait. Also, the, 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 uh, and how we went about that, so we, we did a survey, actually, um, and found that a lot of people in the Waikato, if not outside of the Waikato, didn't really understand the treaty settlement, didn't understand what had happened, what, the, what Tainui had got. Some thought they'd got far too much, almost controlled the whole of the Waikato. So, and we did, oh, well, Tainui didn't help at the time. I say all the publicity was negative, but hadn't gone out and actually said what it was, what it was doing. So what we set up, we set up each year, we had a annual general, an annual general uh, public meeting where we invited all the local dignitaries and actually explained to them what Tanu was all about, what Tanu Group Holdings was all about, what we owned, what we didn't own, um, what we were doing with it, things like the base, etc. And that brought huge support. So, John, talk to us about the development of the Trust's fortunes and where it goes. The, once financial stability was achieved, we reviewed all assets. Property development was the key to the future. As I've said before, we sold off a lot of non-productive land. Uh, also, the shares in the casino, uh, Sky City and Hamilton, that provided a certain funds. Those initial funds were invested with, and managed funds. We used outside investors rather than do it ourselves. We then developed a 10-year property plan because, as I say, property development was the key to it. One of the things that we uh, were very uh, uh, insistent on that we needed partnerships. We did not have the resources or the ability ourselves to do a lot of the property development. So, for example, the base, that was initially with the warehouse. And on that, I must say, Stephen Tindall was outstanding in the support he gave Tainui in the early stages to get the base. The warehouse was a key to getting the base operating. Uh, Auckland Airport, Novotel, Hamilton, Novotel, both partnerships, uh, Huntington with a developer, Ryman with Natahu, and recently they've gone, of course, Natahu and, and uh, Tainui with GoBus, uh, and Rakura will be the many. The big, the big break, actually, to the fortunes of Tainui when I was there came in 2008 with the global financial crisis. All property projects were put on hold except Tiawa, which was the mall, mall at the base. We'd already had farmers signed up for the, for the uh, mall. Um, but as the financial crisis hit, Tainui postponed and say most planned developments saved the base. Planning for the Tiawa, the mall was underway, and in 1998, 19, 19, sorry, 2008, we made the biggest call ever to proceed with a new development despite the ongoing impact of the global financial crisis. We, what we, the board did have, we issued a caveat. 80% of the tenancies had to be signed up before construction could begin on each stage of development. Farmers became farmers trading became the anchor tenant, and construction commenced in 2009. But it was it was certainly one of those um, moments in history you look back on from a board point of view where you made a decision. It could have gone either way, but it went the right way. So while everyone else was um, putting away the checkbook, we actually opened us up on Tiawa. Now, the base was the retail centre that you built. Was that on uh, land that was settled during the treaty? It was. It was the old Air Force base. Right. Uh, but just, just coming back to the headaches, the other thing that was interesting in, you know, after the first year or so was that the trustees uh, obviously wanted certainty of dividend so that they could plan. 
because it was all over the place. Now, of course, both the trustees and the, and the commercial side, we wanted to keep the cash. They want they needed it, and we wanted to keep it because we were trying to build up a nest egg. But what, so what I did was I guaranteed them a $5 million dividend for the first five years. Regardless of the results, they get $5 million. One of my own problems as an accountant was that in those days, of course, property values were going up pretty fast. Right. So you, you could turn around and say, but most of it in our case, because we had such a big land holding, was unrealized. So credit from me, talking about credibility, here was I saying, <laughs> yes, we made $60 million, but guess what? It's only a couple of million bucks of it's in cash. The rest was unrealized. I look at you and say, who are you kidding? <laughs> So and it's it's uh, you have a timing problem with that, don't you? Absolutely. So it's so, so all so from an accounting point of view, the profit was very high, but from a realistic point of view, from a cash point of view, it wasn't there at all. Right. So so how did you cope with that? Well, that's why we had the guaranteed dividend. Right. That's why I said five million, regardless of the result, because we no one knew where the property price was going to go down. There's a head about where we had a big write-offs, of course. Um. So I said, no, that's why we had the guaranteed dividend for the first five years. So they could go and plan, and um, we all knew where we stood. And the d- dividend will have increased over time now. What, what's I, it look like today? I'm, I'm not too sure, but um, I, I, it was about, well, well up on that, between $30, $40 million. Right. Because you left you left the chair role in, in what, about four or five 2000, years? 2012. 2012, Yes. Uh, and the, at that stage, the assets had gone from from what, uh, John? They'd, they'd gone from the 140 million up to about uh, 700. Yes, that's and today, a... and today they'd be well over the billion dollar mark. So it'd be one of the two very successful iwis, wouldn't it, in New Zealand? That's right. In in terms of its development, what in general terms you'd have got to look at a lot of the other iwis. How are they going? Uh, most of them are going very well, extremely well. Right. Um, one, one of the unfortunate things is we only ever hear the negative publicity when something goes wrong. But um, the one, certainly what everything I've seen, they've gone, they're going very well. And they're certainly uh, diversifying their investment. I think one, one of the big things that's happened recently is the number of EWIs have got together and formed this $100 million fund. Right. Along with super, the super, New Zealand Super um, to help them and are going to joint invest. Ah. So this, this, this is not the Tainui's and the Natao's. These are a lot of the smaller iwi. Right. We've put, we've put in $10, 5000000 million each and got a collective fund, which is just being launched now, and that will be that will be investing. Looking at, mainly looking, a, lot, a lot of it's looking at co-investing with this with New Zealand Super. Right. It's, it's uh, spreading the risk, isn't it? It's a, it's exactly, a risk process, yes. Exactly, and, and also um, the, the value of being having larger numbers working together. Right. In Tainui's case, I mean, it must have had a strategic view of where it was going. Um, and I know that you're a little out of date with that now, having left five years ago, but where are they taking this? Well, I think one, if you, if you, and talking generally about iwi in general, looking, what they're looking for is self-reliance, not having to rely on government handouts. Right. That's, I think that's, that's the thing they're all looking for, and to improve health, um, education, the well-being of their people. Right. Now, that, that's their, that's their, obviously their aim, and I say, but more importantly, self-reliance, using this money so that they can create, they don't have to rely on the government. Right. They have become one of the big 
capital landowners of New Zealand, haven't they, the, the yes, iwi? Absolutely, yep. Um, how, do, how do we as New Zealanders treat that going forward? Have we got a view that we should be looking at? Um, I, I, I think the fact that they, that they actually work their assets and it's local ownership, I think we should be encouraging it. Right. right. Well, one of the interesting issues I had um, in the early stages with Tainui was that um, they, because I had, to, I had to get some money, I had to sell some land. Right. You know, a lot of it was very non And I, we'd worked out that you know, some, so much was so unproductive that it was just ridiculous only. But, of course, that went right against their um, aim of having said, look, we lost the land once, we're not going to lose it again. So I came up with a written agreement with them because, I, because after I'd sold it, but I certainly got hauled over the coals over it. Um, they were small bits. And we came up with an agreement that we would actually, we could sell land, but we actually actually grow the estate. Right. So the total acreage had to be, it could never be diminished. It had to either be, um, be stay where it was or increased. Right. So, because the land for Maoridom has a life of its own, doesn't it? Or... Absolutely. And that's, that was the important point. Right. Uh, I, I was very fortunate. At the time I was there, uh, the late Dame Tiati, the Maori Queen, was reigning, and she was a superb person, someone I have huge respect for. She was extremely supportive, and she was the one when I talked about land, uh, explained a lot to me, um, the importance, et cetera, et cetera but also agreed that there was certain land that would be happily sold because it had no significant... But the point was this. Make sure if you're going to sell any land, you actually talk to the tribe and found out what was significant. It might be commercially, it might be ridiculous to own it, but there are other issues. Right. Cultural issues, right? Yep. So the way we structured the board at the end of the day, well, I'd say after a couple of years, was the board consisted of Six, six members, three were trustees, sorry, seven, I beg your pardon, three trustees that were appointed by the trust and three independents and a chair, and the chair had to be an independent. Right, and that held the casting vote, I take it? Uh, no, we never need, well, if you ever need, I, I refuse to do that because, I mean, to me, that was a failure. What happened was every time an issue came up with a land sale or a land purchase, all things like the casino, I say to the uh, trustees the, on the board, you go back and talk to the tribe and come back and tell me. Right. So we never made any of these deals just to see if there was sensitivity. Yes, so there had to be agreement uh, when they moved into some of those issues. Absolutely. There had to be agreement on what we bought or sold um, where, there could be, where there could have been sensitivities. So that was a key role those trustees played was to go and make sure they talked to the tribe told them what we were doing, and w- were there any issues. Right. There would have been some fringe or elements or some disruptive issues in it, though, wouldn't there, um, that probably caused some headaches for you? In, in what terms? In, in the terms of uh, some outliers who might be going politically looking. You mentioned pol- politics earlier on, who might be lobbying for a particular course of action. Oh, yes, Absolutely. Um, so, yes, and that's where I had to be extremely firm. Um, I mean, a, a good example was an approach to us to um, build a rest home for the um, for the old the, for the um, Tainui people, which I said, "Fine, we'll do that. Sounds good." Um, 
that will be charging an appropriate rental to them. Right. <laughs> and that came back, oh, no, 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 these are people that need to be looked after, et cetera. And my view always was, well, that's your job, yep. right? Yep. Think, of, think of us as the, as the inland revenue. Here's the money. You're, if you want to be social welfare, that's fine. We can't do that. We don't know, but that's not our job. Right. So, so there, are no, there are a number of approaches, a lot of approaches, I must say, where you'd have gone down a path that pleased certain individuals that would have been wrong commercially and morally, in my view. Right. Tell, tell me, John, as a, a sort of a white face in there, a non-Maori, was it easy to get the acceptance and support? I mean, you've you've clearly defined what was tribal and what was your territory, but was it easy to get their support? Absolutely. You, 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 I mean, again, uh, I go back to the fact that um, uh, the support of Dame Tiati, the Maori, late Dame Tiati at the time, was extremely important. Uh, people like Karu and Kingi, who had fought hard to have this commercial entity set up, they were extremely supportive, but the vast, vast majority of the tribe were right behind what we were doing. Right. I never ever had any racial issues. Um, I couldn't have asked for more support or acceptance. Uh, as much as possible, I stayed out of the politics. But I guess the advantage I had, having come from a number of years in the dairy industry, I knew what the politics were like. Right. Um, it was a good experiment. A lot of people said to me, you know, you're, um, you're not Maori. How did you put? How did you get involved and how did you put up with that? And I said, I came from the dairy industry. And they laughed. I said, no, it's not a joke. Because I spent 10, I've seen Fonterra being formed, all the politics. I understood it. Uh, and I think I think one of the greatest assets I had was the fact that I was not a tribal member. So, right. therefore, I didn't have the pressure that would have brought. I was truly independent, and I think that was valued by the tribe. Right. Just coming back to the politics, but one of the things we talked about, people, anyone going to these situations... What's very important is the board protects the chief executive from the politics. Right. Because far too often a chief executive can be approached and asked to do things or take certain uh, positions which uh, are not really in the interest of the commercial side. Right. So I, I used to get involved um, a number of times on these to protect the chief executive. Right. Otherwise, you get put in, and he puts in an inevitable position. It's inevitable position. It's just not on. John, knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Absolutely. <laughs> and is there no, anything? I'll tell, I'll tell you why. Being serious, I'll tell you why. Um, a number of times, you know, I was well thanked for doing this. But I used to say, "Well, hang on, I could do the thanking as well because I learned a lot." Right. It was a great experience. I certainly had a far better appreciation of Maori. It's issues um, and the difficulties it faces. Uh, no, no, I, um, I feel very honoured to have done it. So mm. as as we sort of wrap this up, John, what sort of projects are you heavily involved in now? I mean, what's going to keep you interested? Uh, you mean on Maritim? Uh Going forward, anything in general terms? On oh, general terms? I'm getting the end of it, John. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm still heavily involved with Rukawa. That, that really interests me. Right. Uh, in ten, I think, is fascinating. I'm enjoying. I'm really enjoying that. The whole co-op, the whole the whole change that's going on in the retail sector, be it home improvements or anything else. Um, but I'll, I'll always have a. I, 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 I like the co-op. I like the co-op um, model, and that's why I like Mitre ten. Um, so. Um, and still always have an interest in Maritim. I think I think the, the whole I think 
it really is going to get us act together going forward. The more they get together, the better. Right. They realize this. Um, so I think there's a great future there. Oh, John, look, thank you so much, and thank you for joining us. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks, John. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high-altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well.